We'll hear argument now, number 97-679, American Telephone and Telegraph Company versus Central Office Telephone Incorporated. Mr. Carpenter. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether the Ninth Circuit correctly held that the statutory file tariff requirements here codified in Section 203 of the Communications Act apply only to rates and not to the services provided in exchange for those rates. The answer to this question is that the holding is simply wrong. The statutory terms are not limited to rates, but they also prohibit, among other things, any untariffed privilege or facility in communication and any form of rebate. And this Court has held many times that it's an unlawful rebate and preference in violation of these prohibitions for a carrier to provide a service or to enforce a service guarantee that is not covered by the carrier's tariff. And this case also lacks the element that made the recent Maislin and MCIVATT cases close questions in this Court, for no federal agency responsible for the administration of these requirements has ever suggested the Ninth Circuit's interpretation, much less endorsed it as advancing some other legitimate statutory goal. The reality is, is that in situations where tariffs and requirements have applied and should continue to apply, and the federal agencies have found that there are many, the Ninth Circuit's holding would create the very discrimination in rates that everyone, even our opponent, concedes to be the purpose of this requirement. Under the holding, carriers could evade the prohibitions not by misquoting the rates, but by misquoting the service, making service guarantees that aren't in the tariff, and when they're breached, excusing the carrier from paying tariff charges and paying an amount of money that would represent the damages for the breach. Do we take the case as if there's been no violation of the federal statute 201 through 207? Yes, Your Honor. There was no claim litigated that there was any violation of those provisions. The only claims that were litigated is that it was a state law breach of contract and intentional interference with tortious relationships, with the business relationships for ATT to fail to provide COT with the quality of a regulated long-distance service that COT claimed it had been promised. Are there cases which tell us that a state law, the state law of torts, say, inform the construction of reasonableness under the federal statute? That is to say, if there were an interference with an advantageous business relation, that this would carry over to show that this is an unreasonable implementation of the tariffs under the federal statute? Well, there's no limitation on the things that the FCC can consider in deciding whether a difference in treatment is unjust and unreasonable, for example, for purposes of the prohibition of Section 202A of the Communications Act. Similarly, I don't think there would be any limitation on the factors that it could consider in deciding whether something's unjust and unreasonable. You're saying that AT&T is immune from any sort of intentional interference with business relationship action brought against it by anyone who it had a contractual relationship with. That seems extreme. No, that is not our position. First, there are a whole range of intentional and non-intentional torts that don't arise out of the carrier-customer relationship, and the fortuity that someone happens to be our customer wouldn't immunize us from a tort action if a customer were a victim of such a tort. Second, with respect to things that arise out of the customer-carrier relationship, we are under a series of duties under the Communications Act. Yes. 
I, I realize that, but uh, you, you, you would be immune in many respects from an ordinary suit, say, in state court based on state court tort law. Absolutely. If it involved uh, the rates that we charge for our, our communication service or the obligations that we incur in exchange for the receipt of those payments. Well, well I, was, I was asking, because I, yes. I, I have some of the concerns indicated by the Chief Justice's question, uh, whether or not in the, interpreting what is reasonable under the federal statute, uh, lower courts or the, or the agency has said, well, this is an interference with an advantageous business relationship under state tort law, and that informs our judgment as to what is unreasonable. That's an, that, that would be entirely legitimate, but of course the federal statute has to be u- interpreted uniformly. But let me maybe put some of these questions to rest right now. If AT&T had deliberately provided COT and other resellers with, with service that was inferior in quality to that that the commercial customers had received, we would have violated 202 of the Communications Act and we would have been liable to it for the damages we caused. Now, those damages would have been determined under the federal standards of the Act. In, in a federal court or by the FCC? Either place. Obviously, the suits can be brought either place. If there are a question of, uh, of a dispute over the scope of the, of the duty, uh, it could be referred to the FCC under primary jurisdiction, but those suits can be brought in either the federal district court or at the FCC. What, what, if, the, what if AT&T decides that uh, Central Telephone is not simply a customer but a competitor. Central Telephone is a competitor. Um, and then dis- decide simply to drive it out of business. If we had done that and did it by providing it with worse service uh, than uh, it was entitled to under the tariff, under 201 of the Communications Act or 202, it has a federal damages remedy. But that, but but, that, uh, but it has no state law. It, has no, it state. has no state law remedy. It might have a federal antitrust remedy in some circumstance, but it has no state law remedy because the effect of that is to give them a preference over other customers. Well, that really is pushing one principle to the very limit of its logic. Well, let me suggest something for your consideration. In the Abilene case, the 1907 landmark Abilene case, uh, the the, the question there was whether uh, a state law that had the identical substantive prohibitions as the federal statute could be uh, could be applied to uh, to define the regulated carrier's obligation to its customer. The court said, even if the substantive standards are the same, uh, it's inevitable that different states will apply those substantive standards in different ways, and that would defeat the uniformity that's the purpose of the statute. A later case said that this was one of the rare cases of field preemption. Where well, the, where what, was, what was the kind of action that was sought to be brought? It was a yeah. case involving whether the rates were just and reasonable. There was a common uh, law well, right to, to be charged only a reasonable rate. But that, that was certainly a much less of an expansive preemption that you're, than you're arguing for here. Uh, well, you say, you're saying an intentional tort is, is preempted. Your Honor, an intentional tort is preempted only if, only if the predicate for it is, is that the customer didn't receive the quality of service that it was entitled to in exchange for the payment of the tariffed rate. Well, why can it, can it be brought then? Could, could, the, could the claims of intentional interference and the taint claims of willful breach have been brought under the tariff uh, as, as, in effect, claims that, the, uh, that, that AT&T had not used what I think the tariff called its best efforts to provide the services they had contracted for by the time they contracted to provide it. So that uh, at least with respect to these two state causes of action, uh, there would have been a federal remedy. Absolutely, Your Honor. They could have, they could have sued us for violation of the tariff. 
I think if they had sued us on that basis, we would have gotten summary judgment if there had been a close question. But the claims, you, I take the it claims, you're conceding that absolutely. they would have stated claims under the absolutely. tariff if they had been brought under. A absolutely. Uh, I, I don't think it's the case that the, 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 the tariff uh, could have been invoked because our only duty is to make reasonable efforts to set the due date we meet and not to... Uh, and to allow them to cancel if we miss it by more than 45 days. But they certainly can sue us whenever we make a service guarantee in a tariff and breach it. Back Mr. To Carpenter, is it possible that you can make a service guarantee that was not covered by a tariff? Um, if you make a, a guarantee involving the tariff service, it's not covered by the tariff. Well, you, it's invalid. In your brief, you describe network billing and multi-location billing yes. as not covered by the tariff. Um, so there's a terminological uh, issue there. Um, Multi-location billing are, and network billing are two different options that we give customers. Uh, they are different and ways. the tariff doesn't require them to select either one. The tariff, uh, the, the tariff doesn't even discuss them. The tar what the tariff well, does... Does that mean the tariff doesn't require them to select either one? Uh, the, the tariff uh, obviously requires us uh, to bill them, and it defines our obligations in billing them. What if you made a contract to give them one option rather than the other? Would you have to obey that contract? Uh, in our position, it's our position that uh, uh, we, 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 we have to give them a choice of one of those two. Our order forms give them a well, choice. But that's and we not think my question. My question is, you give them a choice, and they say, we'll take network billing, and you say, we will agree to give it to you, but yes. not putting it, we're not modifying any tariff. Right. Would you have to honor that contract? Um, uh, under, under that set of facts, uh, I would read the obligation to provide multi-location billing or network billing into the tariff, and if we violated uh, the obligation the as defined by the tariff, we'd be liable to them in damages. Well, in if this you fail to use your best efforts to provide that billing service as you contracted to do, that would be a violation of the tariff, the best effort provision of the tariff, wouldn't it? Um, if, we, if, we, if we fail to provide it, use our best efforts, uh, that, that, could be a that could be a violation. That would state a violation. Whether that would state a violation uh, of the tariff, and then the question, uh, uh, you know, would be uh, under the limitation liability clause whether it was willful. Uh, this, uh, it, it so happens in this case, our tariff disclaims uh, any responsibility for the billing obligation that they want to read into the tariff. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's answering a, a hypothetical question. In this case, our tariff says we won't do what they said we should have done. But in, the, in the hypothetical question, yes. I, I take it you under the Justice Stevens hypothetical, you would have had the option to file that as a tariff if you made that arrangement? Um, just, just let me clarify one, one thing about multi-location billing. Our tariff, our tariff doesn't describe any of the details about how we uh, bill service or provision service. It, it defines our obligations in doing it and says what they aren't. Uh, our obligations aren't to allocate charges among locations, which is what they want us to do. Our, and, and we have, uh, there's a, not an obligation that uh, we actually render accurate bills. Obviously, they only pay us what's due, but if we render an inaccurate bill, it doesn't excuse anybody from paying the rates, and it doesn't give anybody a right uh, to damage it. Um, and, and it's our, uh, we have implemented this obligation by giving customers a choice between two different ways of billing the service, and, and it's our view that uh, we have to, we, we, we honor the choice. But in a hypothetical case, suppose yes. that you had agreed to provide the MOL billing. Would that have been uh, subject to filing? As a, could you have filed that as a tariff if you had chosen to do so? We could have certainly put in the tariff that the customer has two billing options, multi-location billing and network billing. And we think actually our, the, the, the tariff should be construed 
given that we have these order forms that give people that choice, as imposing that obligation anyway. Um, and the but material you're point saying your tariff prevents you. I, I'm really confused about your billing position because I thought you had just said that your tariff says you will not allocate. That's right. You, so, uh, so whatever multi-location billing is or isn't, it is not a, a, a case where we are assuming the obligation to allocate charges among locations. But yet you did agree, you had a box to check off, and you agreed to provide this service for which the tariff didn't provide. Is that correct? I suppose there would be two ways to look at this. Um, and I'm, the, the first, which I'm not going to advocate, is that the service wasn't authorized by the tariff and was therefore invalid. Uh, that's not our position. Our position is that it was permitted under the tariff so long as it didn't constitute an allocation of charges that gave them a right not to pay us or to sue us for damages if we didn't do it accurately. And that's their claim here. Um, well, one thing to remember... Well, wasn't their claim is that... You know, oh, their claim is that we didn't accurately bill their customers on their behalf. The tariff said we won't accurately bill your customers on your behalf, and the FCC regulations say that that is a service that we can't provide in exchange for payment of the tariff rate. The FCC has defined that as outside the scope of, of the regulated common carrier service that we offer. That's something that's been deregulated. So, so that, this is a situation where our, our, our tariff didn't uh, assume the obligation that they're claiming and in which the FCC's regulations would have prevented us from trying to put uh, the service that they're claiming into the tariff. But would it have prevented you from making a contract to do that? No, it would not have prevented that, but it would have had to be a separate contract for a separate consideration. It's, uh, Judge Posner had a wonderful and, phrase. And, would, and that would have been enforceable in a state court? or Yes, that would have been enforceable in state court because that would have been a contract for an unregulated service declared by the FCC to be outside the, co the scope of common carrier communication services. That would be like uh, if we had a separate contract to quote Judge Posner to sell them oogly fruit at a market price. Uh, that's outside the common carrier relationship. Just it would, be, it would be outside the common carrier relationship if we committed an intentional tort like uh, libel. Uh, and the fact that someone happened to be our customer uh, wouldn't immunize us from a libel suit. But, but the same doesn't obtain for intentional interference with business relationships. It does obtain if the intentional interference doesn't ar arise out of a relationship with them as our long-distance customer. So if we, they, they, were, they mentioned something here called slamming, which is when you change a long-distance customer from your, someone else's service to yours without authorization. That's a classic example of something that is quite independent of the customer-carrier relationship, but that wasn't the basis for this judgment here. But you, would slamming be uh, would, uh, an intentional interference with business relationships manifested by slamming? Would that be actionable in state yes, court? Yes, that would be actionable in state court. That would be actionable. But what's not actionable in state court are claims involving the rates or the obligations the carrier incurs in exchange for the rates. That's what's not actionable. And, and, the, and the propositions we I, have... I don't know why slamming... We don't have time to go into all the economics. I don't know why slamming doesn't have anything to do with that. Just that I'm not quite sure I understand Nader, why, why overbooking doesn't have to do with the, the rates the carrier can argue. All right, well, let me, let me respond to both. Um, uh, when slamming occurs, generally the, the carrier that's the victim isn't your customer. Um, MCI occasionally uh, uh, changes our customers to it uh, when, when they're not authorized. So, so that's something that has nothing to do with the fact uh, whether two, custom, two carriers happen to be customers of one another. It's entirely independent. It's just fortuitous in this situation that in the two incidents of, of slamming that occurred, but that weren't the basis for this judgment, uh, that COT happened to also be our customer. 
Now, with respect to Nader, uh, that was a case where there was no filed tariff claim, uh, and that was a case where, where the, the, the practice of disclosing overbooking or not, uh, overbooking or not, was outside the CAB's definition, definition of the tariff transportation service. They had a regulation that specifically authorized common law actions in the event that there was non-disclosure of, of overbooking. So the key thing is what's within the scope of, of, the, uh, of the agency's definition and the, and the statute's definition of the regulated service. And if a claim involves the rates or the services to be provided in exchange for the rates, uh, then it's going to be governed exclusively by uh, federal law and federal standards, and state law can't be applied. How can you tell whether something is being, uh, being uh, given in exchange for the rates? I mean, even the contract for oogly fruit, uh, you know, you could, you could get a sweetheart deal on oogly fruit uh, because of the fact that you're, you're paying more for the rates. It's very hard to, to, to know what's, you know, what, what is getting the benefit of the rates. No, that, that's true, you, 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 but there's always going to be uh, questions of, of law application in a case like that. Posner suggested you'd have to prove that the oogly fruit was provided at a market rate. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's easy. Because the only relationship we had with COT is that they were our long-distance customer. The only thing we provided them was, was regulated long-distance service, and the, and the only thing they paid us was the tariff trade. Uh, and this is a situation where the guarantees that they're seeking, uh, the provision and billing guarantees, uh, weren't in the tariff. So, they're so getting, if you did this for them, the only reason you would have done it was because of the rates that you got? That was our, yes, that's right. I thought there's a whole doctrine of law designed to answer that question, which I didn't see here. But I mean, if in fact you have a... Uh, a, a generalized statutory framework like tort law or something, and Congress may have created an exception for certain uh, activities that fall within the jurisdiction of an agency, and you have a tariff that may or may not cover those activities, and the court is uncertain about the extent to which this particular kind of activity does or does not fall within the tariff or fall within the statutorily implied exemption, I thought there was a doctrine of law designed to cover that. Primary jurisdiction? Yes, exactly. Yes, absolutely. Primary absolutely. jurisdiction. And if, and if and nobody is, asked for primary. I mean, what are we supposed to do about that? Well, in this case, there was no occasion to ask for a primary jurisdiction referral because... The it's case, obvious that it's within the statutory exemption. Your Honor, if, they had, if they had brought this case under the... T- Wait, I didn't mean to cut you off. You were just giving an answer. Say what you said. Um, say well, what I, let, me, let me answer what I said. They brought this case under the tariff. They didn't bring this case under the tariff. They brought it under state law... Uh, the state law standards. Uh, if they brought it under the tariff, we, we would have sought summary judgment on the ground that what we did didn't violate the tariff. If there had been a close question there, it would have been referred uh, to the FCC under primary jurisdiction. We raised a federal defense to their state law uh, claims here, and it was rejected on the ground that the doctrine only applies to rates. So we didn't, there wasn't any occasion for a primary jurisdiction referral on the validity of the defense we asserted. Um, the um, the, 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 this is a, a situation where the court could simply say that the Ninth Circuit is wrong, that the doctrine uh, applies only to rates, and send it back to the Ninth Circuit to let it review uh, the trial court's judgment again. Um, Mr. Carpenter, before you leave the billing uh, aspect of this claim, uh, maybe you can clarify my confusion. As I understand that claim, it is that uh, you build the customers directly, as was requested, the multi-location, but you gave the customers the full discount, which meant that the resellers lost the only thing that they were in the business for, that is... That's right. 
And you then said here that you could have an agreement outside the tariff with regard to the billing options. So if you can have an agreement outside the tariff for the billing options, then why wouldn't the breach of that agreement be a proper lawsuit for state court? It would be an unlawful preference under the, the, the Wabash Railroad and other decisions of this court. If we had given them a service outside the scope of the tariff at no extra charge, the only way we could oh, I see. You say you could do it outside, but it right. has to be for an extra yes. charge. I understand. So, so, and, and just a, a, everyone's very interested in more location billing. It's really only the basis for the, the decision that we weren't entitled to recover the unpaid charges. Um, I don't think it couldn't possibly support the lost profits award. Um, but the, w- with respect to that, remember, this is a service that we design for l- large corporate customers that have locations in multiple uh, uh, cities. Uh, any reseller, any customer is entitled to get the service on the same terms as everybody else. Uh, all the terms of the service reflect the needs of those customers. These are customers that like multi-location billing because it allows them to do internal some of them like it because it allows internal cost allocation. If we make mistakes when we're sending a bill to the customers for whom it's designed, it doesn't have any big consequences. It's just an internal cost allocation. Now, it's certainly true, and I accept, I mean, I accept their claims, that it does have consequences for resellers. But their right is to get the service on the, on, you know, the, the, service on the, on the, on the terms set forth in the tariff containing only the service guarantees set forth in the tariff. This, this service doesn't have a, a guarantee that we're going to accurately bill locations every month because the large customers didn't, you know, we didn't think they cared enough about it to want to pay extra for it. It's important to these people. I accept that. Their way of getting it under this tariff and under the FCC's regulations would have been to contract separately with us to provide that billing service at an extra market uh, rate. And we do that all the time for resellers and other customers. Mr. Carpenter, I lost part of, part of your explanation. You said that... Uh the choice between network billing and multi-location billing uh, was available to them with no extra charge. Right? Yes, that's right. So why should they have to pay extra for it to have a binding agreement th- th- to take one rather than have to pay extra to get, to get it done right? No, um, well, that's yeah. that's a very... Well, I, I, that's a tendentious way very, to put it. That, 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 it, it uh, I think it, it actually it, it does boil down to that. If we were going to guarantee that we were going to accurately do that every month, we would be charging more. There's no such guarantee in our tariff, and we don't ever guarantee, uh, uh, we guarantee some tariffs accurate billing, but it's something that people pay extra for. In this service, the customers for whom it's designed didn't care enough about this to want to pay extra. Well, but isn't it this, I thought the answer to Justice Stevens' question, that hit, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's, I think it's important, is that there are certain services that AT&T in our odd sort of half-slave, half-free world that we have at the moment uh, uh, provides on the free side. And the FCC has a tariff, or has a rule, rather, that says certain kinds of areas don't fall within the tariffs. That's right. And it's because of that rule, not because of any fairness or anything else in the situation. It's because of that rule that, that you operate now in the non-regulated world. And once you're in the non-regulated world, of course, contract law, tort law, and every other law governs. Right. And that's why, not because of the fairness of the situation or anything else, that had they paid for it, they would have taken themselves within the scope of that rule right. and thereby removed themselves from the tariff-regulated world. Right. And Is that right? Right. And it would have been an unlawful rebate if yeah. we'd given them that unregulated billing service. If you're in the regulated the world. For nothing. If, as law, if, they, if they don't pay for it, they're in the regulated world defined by the FCC tariff. 
but not the FCC rule. Am I right? If, if all they, if all they pay right? for is, if all they pay us is the tariffed rate, yeah. all they're entitled to are the services that are authorized by the tariff. And, and under the FCC's rule, the, the, the particular kind of billing service they want has to be provided outside the tariff in the deregulated world. And the reason you said what you just said, I want, you, I want to be sure I'm thinking about this right, is because when they don't pay for it under a particular FCC interpretation of a statute or something, they fall within the regulated world. I wouldn't put it quite that How way. Would you the way I would put it is that uh, they're entitled, uh, in exchange for payment of the tariff rate, to get services that are within the scope of the tariff. If we give them something mm. extra mm. that's outside the scope of the tariff, whether it's a, a regulated something extra or an unregulated something extra, that's a rebate and a preference. Mm -hmm. This case is easy mm -hmm. because the something extra is unregulated mm -hmm. and can only be provided uh, in contracts and can't be provided as part of the tariff service. Well, is the option regulated or unregulated? The, 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 when you give them an option, is that regulated? The option is, is regulated because the op option doesn't encompass the things that, that would make it an unregulated service. The, the, what's unregulated is when we provide a. It, it, what's unregulated is if we basically provide a service in which we are going to bill not our customer, but the customers of our customers. Now they, they say they're a carrier. But you, but you, but as I understand it, you've told them that for no extra charge you will do that. No, for no extra charge, we have told them that we will send bills to whatever locations that that that, that they uh, designate. Uh, that will uh, uh, that will show on the bill a portion of the volume discount. But bills to them as distinct from bills to their customer. Who are you billing? We are bill This is the way in which we bill our customer. Right. So the bill is going to read, "You customer pay so much for service at this location," as opposed to, "Your you customer's customer pay." That. Right. That's okay. right. That's right. That's all we can do under the, t the tariff governs the billing relationship between us and our customers. If, 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 if somebody wants a service in which we're going to help our customers recover money for long-distance service from their but customers... But as I understand it, the tariff doesn't require you to do either of those options. What the tariff does is it prohibits us from providing the service that they want. It prohibits you from giving that option to the customer? Because I thought if, you did give that option to no, the customer. No, Your Honor, we give this, the customer a choice between two, two ways of getting bills, neither of which can, under the tariff constitute the allocation of charges. The, the reason these, these services can be lawfully offered under the tariff and that customers can be lawfully given this option is that the, 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 the billing service we offer doesn't have the character. What you're saying, as I understand, plan. is you can give the option pursuant to the tariff, but if you uh, guarantee the option, they have to pay extra. If, if uh, They would have to pay extra if we, if we guarantee we do it right. But the, the other additional factor is is, is, is if we're assuming an obligation for billing their customers, which is what they're claiming, then it's in the deregulated world that Justice Breyer referred to, and we can only do it by contract. All right. The part that I don't understand is, I understand your last statement, that if you're going to bill the customer's customer, that's in, a that's in the deregulated world. You can only do it by separate contract, separate consideration. What about the situation in which you bill your customer? I thought you could not make a separate contract to bill your customer accurately for separate consideration because that would be at variance That's with correct. the tariff. That's that correct. That is correct. That's okay. correct. That's correct. Now, now, now uh, uh, you know, people could argue that the tariff should be construed as requiring us to, us to do that. But basically, the only service guarantees that are enforced against us are those that are expressed in the tariff. That was what this court held in the Kirby and the Davis and Robinson cases. 
I, I think in, in, in perhaps in, in kidding around with one of the questions earlier, you, you may have conceded too much, because I thought you were conceding that if the customer wanted the tariff service of multi-location billing done accurately and wanted to be able to enforce it as an, uh, as an obligation to do it accurately, the customer would have to pay extra for it, separate consideration. And I think your answer is no, the customer, we simply cannot do that and the customer cannot do it. Uh, the only thing we can do uh, which adds or, or is different from what is in the tariff is to provide the entirely separate service of billing the customer's customer. That's unregulated. That we can do it. That they can enforce That's by correct. contract. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Thank you, Mr. Carpenter. <coughs> Mr. Hall, we'll hear from you. W would you tell us what was the basis for federal jurisdiction in the district court here, Mr. Hall? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, we sued under diversity. Uh, may it please the court, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Uh, we say that the Ninth Circuit should be affirmed on three separate grounds, one of which is the competitive relationships between the two companies under which the, inter in, uh, pardon me, the intentional interference claim was filed. And the second one is that the savings clause uh, in the Federal Communications Act saves uh, the interference claim and saves uh, our claim for willful misconduct. And our third reason uh, argument is that the tariff itself expressly provides for the action that we brought. Uh, that particular uh, section has not been mentioned so far uh, in the discussions. The competitor claims... But uh, just on the last point, because I, I, I think it follows from what we've just been discussing uh, with the petitioner's counsel. Uh, if the service is provided by the tariff, then you should have sued under the federal law sections 201 through 207. Uh, for uh, violation of the terms of the tariff well, that is or, or unreasonable uh, provision of services in violation of the tariff, and you didn't do that. Well, that is not raised here as an issue, Your Honor, but, but the... Well, but, uh, but it's, 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 in, it's important because we're trying yes. to ask if there is a cause of action, and if so, what it is. Well, there are two causes of action here, Your Honor. One of them, uh, the intentional interference is simply totally outside of the, of the tariff and is preserved by... Uh, the savings clause, and separately from that, it's simply not within the cognizance of the Communications Act, the relationships between these two competitors. Uh, well, well, you're right. But, but your case, is, it, it seems to me it's very important for us to understand whether or not you would have had a cause of action on, under this third argument that you mentioned, that the tariff did in fact provide this and it wasn't being given. It seems to me the answer is that, sue under uh, the federal law. Your Honor, we have made the assumption, and, if, and I believe that AT&T has made the statement to the FCC to the same effect that willful misconduct is fully can be sued under and it is 2.3.1 of the tariff it is a section of it's the lead section of the tariff but surely uh, a person cannot by tariff change the meaning of a federal statute well this has so, the so what your argument is that that in fact your claim your claim this kind of a claim when we read the communication statute the communication statute does not mean to preempt this kind of claim. That is true, Your Honor. Right, fine. Right. Either your argument arises under the tariff or it doesn't. Yes. If it does, Justice Kennedy says, go to the commission. Our third argument. If it doesn't, I say, don't the courts continuously, hasn't this court continuously, where it's a close question, in the antitrust area, for example, said where the claim is, judge, the communication statute, the regulatory statute, isn't meant to preempt this kind of claim. Where that's a close question, hasn't this court always said, go first to the commission and see what they think? 
Go first, get the interpretation of the tariff, get the interpretation of the statute, get their views on whether that's so or not, and then come to court. Well, in this instance, as, as counsel mentioned to Your Honor, they did not ask for a referral. Maybe they didn't, but what's the judge supposed to do if he wants to follow the law? Well, I think the judge felt that the common law claims uh, were well within his cognizance, and the willful misconduct claim, which we say is under the file tariff uh, itself, it is uh, authorized by 203A, uh, which has the filing of the tariff, becomes the law, 201, pardon me, 2.3.1, which is the willful misconduct uh, uh, cause of action. If you oh, wait, did you, you read that as saying any state cause of action for willful uh, misconduct will lie? I, I, I read it as saying that the limitations which the tariff has on liability, those limitations contained in the tariff do not apply in the case of willful misconduct. For example, B says, uh, all of this is on page 10A of, the, of, uh, of your brief, the blue brief. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the petitioner's brief. B says the company is not liable for damages associated with service channels or equipment which it does not furnish. Uh, well, I suppose that uh, if, if they intentionally uh, uh, somehow got you assigned uh, uh, somebody else's equipment that was inferior, uh, this, uh, this willful misconduct uh, provision would, would eliminate that, uh, that exemption. Well, uh, willful but I don't read it as saying that uh, so long as it's willful, uh, you can uh, you, you 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 can bring suit for uh, for over for, I mean for charging you too much. You, you that's can... definitely not that, Your Honor. That would be rate or rate affecting, and we and we our lawsuit okay. is not rate or rate affecting. Okay, so you ultimately have to get down to that argument. Wait, Willful doesn't doesn't take you out of the out of the box. No, we it. read into that that okay. it must not be rate affecting as well, okay. because we know the cases like Marco where you've had a collision between uh, willful misconduct and. Uh, and, and misrepresentation of rates. This is not a misrepresentation of rates case or rate-related in our view. And counsel has mentioned, I believe, that uh, the SEC might perhaps uh, give guidance on these non-tariff uh, items. It hasn't done so. But don't you have the obligation to ask them? That is, why isn't our problem, or is it? We say, of course, if it's a tariff violation or the tariff was unreasonable under the statute, which you could also argue, you should have gone to the commission. Well, you are. Well, in your argument... Yeah which is all that's irrelevant because the statute doesn't mean to preempt state unfair competition law, you still should have gone to the commission to get some determination about that. Now, if you ran into a statute of limitations problem, maybe you file your case in court and then ask them under primary jurisdiction to hold it while you go to the commission. But that would be your responsibility. So why don't we end up saying at least it's a close question, therefore you didn't go to the right place? Well, there's quite a body of, I guess you'd call it negotiation, in this area already, Your Honor, I'm doing my arguments in reverse now, but in any event, uh, the amici for us have come in, the large users, and put into their index a great number. They can't, because of confidentiality, go into the details of those contracts, but they have put in a large number of subject areas, which are exactly the subject areas that we're talking about in our particular case. AT&T, at page 35 of its opening brief, went into the same kind of uh, listings of things that are uh, associated with tariff items are part of, they call the details a minute ago, they're all part and parcel of it. And as a matter of fact, we have in our own case, we went back after the amicus brief, and these are ER, these are in the record, but they were not in my briefing, and simply looked at what AT&T gave us when we signed up for Software Defined Network. Uh, this is all part of what the court instructed was going to be part of the contract for these people to uh, at the jury to work on. That's a classic case, isn't it? If you're saying this is all too complicated, it's absurd to think that people have to read all this, where you would go to the commission, 
say, Commission, the statute requires reasonable rate services. Uh, their rate and service is under a thing like that. Nobody can understand that. And therefore, it's totally unreasonable. And therefore, it's outside the statute. Moreover, we get reparations. Reparations, I take it, something the FCC can award. Well, Your Honor, no. maybe if we had the FTC right. guidelines type of situation with the Robinson-Patman Act, but here we have the FCC doesn't even want the file sheriff doctrine anymore, and I don't think as a practical matter we would be, have much luck. Well, uh, your, your, complaint, your complaint, Mr. Hall, was not a, of a violation of any, uh, of any provision of, of the Act, was it? Or was it? Yes, Your Honor. Under, our, under 2.3.1, it, that takes its direct authority from nope. 202A is the filing requirement, and 202, uh, 2.3.1, which says the liability, if any, of AT&T for its willful misconduct is not limited by this tariff. And to us, that was extremely clear language. Well, then, then uh, it seems to me that you, your, your response to Justice Breyer's question is, is not adequate, because Section 208 seems to say that if you're complaining about a carrier's violation of the Act, you can file a complaint with the Commission, and the Commission will adjudicate it. Yes, Your Honor, but this would rend- render nugatory the 2.3.1. It, uh, it is a separate cause. What is 2 is, is that a regulation? That is the part of the tariff, Your Honor, which well, has the authority of 2.203A. But how could a tariff uh, repeal a part of the statute? It didn't repeal it, Your Honor. It simply gave, under the right of 203A, uh, willful misconduct to the uh, customer as a way of seeking redress. But why couldn't he, why shouldn't he, why mustn't he do it under the federal statute? Well, again, Your Honor, uh, we are saying, and we have said, and it says the company's liability is not limited by the tariff, as I assume the company has to pay uh, an amount that's not set forth in the tariff in in the event of willful misconduct. But that is far different from saying that it must look to state law and and, and that the customer can go to state law. Your intentional uh, intentional tort, mis- misconduct, interference. Now, is, is that brought under the, is, is that a violation of the Act, or is that a state law claim? That is a state law claim, Your Honor, which was brought under the Savings Clause. Well, then, and, then that you would, uh, even and, if we assume that you would have to go to the Commission uh, to get adjudicated a claim that what AT&T did was in violation of the Act, uh, if you're not claiming a violation of the Act, then presumably that would not apply, and you wouldn't have to go to the Commission. Well, Your Honor, we are saying two things about our intentional claim. First of all, we're saying the intentional claim is separate from the Communications Act. It's simply not within its purview. It's not the kind of a thing that the customer relationship that the Communication Act addresses. This is between competitors. This, this, the I believe the court has probably seen in our opening brief where we had to state our position of facts quite differently from AT&T's that we had a very classic intentional interference claim where they wished to put us out of business. And we're Suppose they try to put you out of business by charging too much, charging more than their filed tariff allows for this service. Would well, you have a separate state cause of action? Your Honor, that one, uh, we, we cited to, to you some, some antitrust cases, and two of those antitrust cases that we cited, these are in the circuits, uh, City of Kirkwood and uh, City of Broughton were ones where there were price squeezes, where municipality had its price squeezed by the uh, yeah, but the prices are charged were the tariff prices. They were they were complaining that the tariff prices were set at such a level that that there was a squeeze between what it cost them to provide the service and and what they had to pay to the uh, uh, to the carrier. So I was trying to answer your question, Your Honor, only to say that the 
that those issues have been considered. That is not in our case, however. That's you just answer my question. Suppose you claim that the way they were trying to harm you as a competitor yeah. was by charging you more than the tariff allowed. Would you have a private cause of action for that, either under 2.3.1 or anywhere else? I don't, I don't think we would win, Your Honor, but we would certainly cite those two cases I just mentioned to you because uh, they do tend to support our position. See, I thought you had, I thought you had conceded that point. In, in answer to my question earlier when we were talking about willful misconduct, I thought, I thought the position you took was that all that willful misconduct applies to is willful misconduct with regard to matters other than the tariffed items. But you're now saying that it includes willful misconduct even regarding the matters covered in the tariff. Both. Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Then can I, can I, I'm trying to be helpful to you on this first part of the question. I'm going back to the Chief Justice's question, which was the question of let's focus, forgetting all the tariff stuff, forgetting everything but your state claim, which you say was saved from the statute by the savings clause. Yes. That's, I take it, another way of saying that this statute, the Communications Act, does not mean to displace state law here. That is right, Your Honor. All right. Now, the case that's most in your favor, I think, is Nader, isn't it? It, I think it is also supported by Morales versus TWA. All right. If I think of Nader, I think of a case where this court thought that the law, the state law, was clear enough, given a decision by the agency, that we want nothing to do with overbooking. That's a matter of state tort law. In light of that, it's clear enough that you can proceed in court without ever going to the FCC or the agency. Under all the antitrust cases say it's not at all clear. We don't know what this means or whether Congress did or did not want to displace the federal system of antitrust law, so go to the agency first. We want their advice. Now, why does your case fall within the first and not the second? Well, you are. Why, in other words, my first take on it would be, of course, Congress wanted to displace state unfair competition law. At least it's unclear. Now, why is my initial take on that wrong? Well, if I understood your correction, your question correctly, Your Honor, the the antitrust claims that we cited did survive. If you want to put that, the Communications Act and, and filed rate doctrine uh, objections, and these are Communications Act cases in one instance. The other kinds of claims that I'm not, that involve us also go under 414. They go under the, the general competition uh, viewpoint that let those antitrust claims go because they were not within the purview of the Communications Act, and we believe that's a strong separate basis. In the uh, Ninth Circuit, there was a cooperative communications case mentioned by both the dissent and the majority. That one was one in which uh, the, the minority praised the case for the result, which was under the 414, and also because it was an independent competitor claim. Under both instances, it was free from the, the filed rate doctrine and the problems that we had in the court below. But what had happened was, it didn't, the dissent did not recognize that we too are a competitor, just as counsel uh, advised the court recently, just a moment ago. We're a competitor just as much as the cooperative communication case that the dissent uh, approved. Uh, we have, uh, under 414, you're mentioning Nader, uh, in the later case of TWA versus Morales, uh, in that particular case, uh, there was an amendment, uh, the Airline Deregulation Act, 
uh, to the FAA, and under that one, uh, the court found a very strong preemption and strong, strong related to language. Under both of those approaches, uh, the state AG's efforts to regulate went out the window. And the court said in that particular case, and citing Nader, that the pre-1978 FAA, uh, Nader, pardon me, the state AGs would have, would have been able to do exactly what they did do, or tried to do, I should have said. And, and also they added on that the states could have regulated intrastate uh, rates uh, of these carriers, and, and even the rates of uh, interstate carriers that were intrastate. So that's a very strong case, and they relied upon the savings clause of the prior act, of the FAA Act. That savings clause is word for word the same clause that we have in the Federal Communications Act. Well, the response that AT&T makes to that, of course, is that how, you, you can't possibly interpret it a savings clause, unless you're going to gut the federal legislation, to save state law that positively contradicts the federal law. I mean, that's, that's interpreting it so much so that, that there's nothing left of the federal law. Well, there you are. I guess our, our answer to that has been that we can't understand how attempting to put somebody out of business and willful misconduct, which included a mess of dirty tricks, relates to the uh, purposes of the Communications Act. It depends. If you try to, if, if your claim is that they tried to put you out of business by uh, committing a violation of the Federal Communications Act, then you're simply contradicting the Communications Act uh, if, if you're asserting that they should have provided you off-tariff services which the tariff do, uh, which the act does not permit them to provide. Well, again, Your Honor... That's your business claim. You're contradicting the act. We go back to the really quite a large body of work we have in this particular case where we have the RMECI, AT&T itself, at various parts of its brief, in the materials I indicated to the court that we received. We have a large body of, if not law, of business practice occurring now where a huge amount is not under the direct tariff language. Nobody can tell a, a carrier what it puts into a, into the uh, tariff. They may put in uh, non-rate-affecting materials in there. So you have to look at, at everything to see whether they are or are not rate-affecting. May I and, just... Uh, pardon me. I'm sorry. I didn't want to, I thought you'd finish your answer. Excuse me, Justice Stevens. Um, I just want to get two things straight on the record from my own uh, information. And until Justice Breyer raised this question about primary jurisdiction, had the uh, AT&T ever, or the district court, or anybody else suggested that uh, there was a primary jurisdiction issue in the case? No. And the second question I have is, has the FCC, uh, have they filed an amicus brief at any stage of these proceedings? No, Your Honor. We it's suggested they do, but they didn't respond. I see. And the third, I guess my third question is, is it your claim that the matters of which you complain are outside the tariff or within the tariff? There are, there are, it's a strange mix, and I will tell you one of the reasons why is that at the trial, uh, the AT&T tariff expert said that provisioning and billing, which are a large part of what we're talking about here, are not in the tariff. And that has not helped us make a, a, dis a fine distinction here. Uh, we, have, uh, we have, in our pretrial order, we listed the kinds of acts, uh, and that's in the JA. We listed the kind of acts uh, that we were complaining about many of which would square off against tariff provisions, and many of which would not. A suppressed billing would not. Um, deliberately trying to keep us from getting any cash would not. Um, slamming, the council just agreed, would not. Uh, misappropriation of our customers would not. So we felt that the willful misconduct 
meant a lot more than going down the line of individual numbers below that to see what the what the breaches were. We felt that willful misconduct under state law, which is the usual referral, uh, meant a lot more than that, just as intentional interference does. What's these were all some of these were much more what would be commonly called intentional interference uh, type uh, actions. What is the difference between, um, let's imagine in Maislin, we have a trucking firm, and the trucking firm charged lower than tariff rates to a whole lot of shippers, a lot of them. And then later on, they all go out of business when the trucking firm comes along, has to raise the rates. Well, I mean, is that a matter not for the ICC? Is that a matter? I mean, what's the, there's a filed rate. The filed rate says you have to charge a dollar. They charge 50 cents. It was all in very good faith and so forth. And nonetheless, the tariff set a dollar. So lo and behold, they had to pay a dollar. They all went out of business. I mean, who knows what happened? Well, we know that we're all presumed to know the tariff, even though we don't. And, and that was another... Uh, How does your case differ from that? Because, because what they're saying is, well, at worst, you know, at worst, accepting everything you say. We this paid. is an instance where they filed tariffs as to services. They say what it is. Perhaps wrongly, AT&T goes and gives some different services or doesn't do what it said in the tariff or whatever, just like those trucks in Maislin. And now you're hurt. But we said in Maislin, follow the rate. Right, follow Your the Honor. Tariff, the rate. Follow the file. What's the difference? We, we are paying the rate. There's no question about that. Rates and services are treated alike, aren't they? It's rates, service. Rates affecting, I mean, I mean, services affecting rates under the Federal Communications Act, which makes a big difference. And there were a lot that AT&T says in this courtroom and has said in its briefing, and the, and the amici have said, do not affect rates. And most of what we are talking about here, that we are certain does not affect rates. And uh, it's been mentioned before about this MLB uh, label uh, and network uh, comment in the AT&T brief where they said uh, that while these may have value, there's no charge for them. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's easy to say that, that selecting between, what is it, multiple location building and uh, the other building, selecting between one or the other doesn't affect rates. They're willing to give the, you the option. It apparently costs them no more to do the one than the other. But selecting between multiple location building in which they make sure that what's billed to that location is only the stuff that's been charged to it, and whatever else, that is something that affects rates because because the tariff says you're not going to get that. And because it does take a lot more expenditure on their part and they're not willing to provide it without more money. How can you say that that doesn't affect rates? Well, that, Your Honor, leads to another conundrum within this language we have here. Uh, AT&T said in its tariff that LABO was available. That's another one of these accounts, location account billing. And... Lo and behold, we, when we went into a uh, contract with them, were put on label. Not NMLB and not network. We were put on label. Label, under their tariff, is impermissible to us. It's for franchised operations where there's common ownership. They stuck us into label, and that, I think uh, Justice Ginberg mentioned, all the funds then went to our end users and left us to fight it out with them is one of the main reasons we lost all of our Now, that, that was a violation of the tariff, you say. That is a violation of the tariff. At the and same you, time... And you'd have a remedy for that at the, at the uh, Communications Commission, right? You could, but it's also a part of willful misconduct if it's intentional and uh, if it's part of all these other things I've been so mentioning. Any intentional right. violation of a tariff, you, you can go under state law. Uh, Your Honor... 
I think that any, any you have to prove willful misconduct, but it's a separate matter, and it has equal dignity. We've mentioned the Primrose case from this court in 1894, where this court said you have to, you utilities have to provide uh, for liability for willful Do misconduct. Do I have to agree with you on that in order for you to win the case? Because I find that an extraordinary proposition that, 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 that even more, for, for, for the most clear tariff violations, you can sue under state law, so long as they have been willful. It's and and so long as they are not rate-affecting. I'm ready to ah, certainly concede ah, that. I That's what we've always said that. And so long as they are not rate-affecting. Yes, we have, we have to make that analysis of it. And uh, I'm sorry if I didn't say it correctly. Well, is there earlier. anything in the tariff that is not rate-affecting? Yes. There, there are many things that, would, that are not rate-affecting in a tariff. The tariff, they, they are required to put what is rate-affecting in the tariff, but they go down and file thousands of tariffs. They can put non-rate-affecting things in there just as easily as rate-affecting if it serves their purposes. I see. I see. And, and what? Okay. But that doesn't that get you right back into the preference that was the whole purpose of the filed rate doctrine? I thought the filed rate doctrine said you put everything in your tariff, and these are the terms, all takers get the same thing. But if you then say there are some things that are not rate-affecting, you just put those outside your tariff, it seems to defeat the whole purpose of what the file rate doctrine, which may be passe, but that's another matter. Well, Justice Ginsburg, again, I have to, the, the real world that has been shown here in the evidence by both sides, uh, I've cited page 35 of their opening brief and 13 and 14 of their uh, closing brief, all the materials that were submitted by the amici and those of our own in the actual working world, they all accept these as part of, of gap fillers, as they call them, or details, as was called by counsel, as part of the tariff. Those are not antithetical to it. They're co- consistent with the tariff. No, but Justice Ginsburg was talking about matters that are set forth in the tariff, not these side agreements. Okay. Yes, John. Yeah, your, your position is that even some things set forth in the tariff don't, uh, don't, don't affect the rates. And, and, and you can sue for, for failure to provide those provisions under state law, so long as they're not rate-affecting. And I, I find that a difficult... Well, Your Honor, AT&T made no effort at trial to make any such distinctions, but I'll come back to that in just a second, because I also want to say that AT&T at trial made no such arguments as they're making here today, that there were preferences, uh, that there were rebates, and so forth. An absolute silent record on that. In the intentional interference claim that we filed... If the pretrial order is in the JA, and in that, Your Honor, you will find that they raise the defense of commercial privilege or competitive privilege alone. No such thing as a file rate doctrine defense. Uh, when they requested instructions for the, uh, for the, to give, the judge to give, they did not ask for any instruction that the file rate doctrine opposed the um, intentional interference claim. It doesn't. But the Ninth Circuit passed on that question. Uh, the United, the, the Ninth Circuit said more than it should have there, Your Honor, because it simply overlooked our position. Your view is they waived it, is that right? You're saying they waived it? That, they, that you came in and brought an ordinary state law tort suit. You won, they lost. Nobody said a word about tariffs of the FCC. And now you're saying nobody raised this till appeal, so it's waived. Is that the point? At the trial, Your Honor, I'm, I'm really pointing out that intentional Mr. interference... Hall, at page 51 of the uh, joint appendix, the pre-trial order, G, first affirmative defense, filed tariff doctrine. Is that under the intentional interference, Your Honor? Well, it's their first affirmative defense. I don't know. All right. I, I, at I, least I, have talked about that. I, I, I may have misspoken myself, but I'm awfully certain that under the intentional interference claim, they did not raise the, uh, the, um, the, the file rate doctrine. 
if we're speaking practically, is there anything impractical about the following? You file your complaint in court to protect against the statute of limitations. You then go to the commission and raise all your claims having to do with the tariff. You might win. If you lose, at least there's a good chance there'll be something that comes out of the commission that clarifies the remaining question, namely the question of whether if you lose everything within the tariffs, nonetheless, nothing preempts the operation of straight law, state law in this area. Now, as a practical matter, is there anything wrong with that, which is what I thought that, you know, there are quite a few cases suggest that's the right route. Right? Well, reserving that, we thoroughly believe we had the right to file an intentional interference claim, and if it weren't linked to this other one, we wouldn't even be here today in our opinion. But secondly, uh, Your Honor, as a practical matter, going to the, uh, taking a referral and coming to Washington, D.C. from Portland, Oregon, is a big financial uh, matter. Uh, the... the, the I, I take it the argument of AT&T is that uh, if you had been simply a, a competitor and not a customer, uh, there might have been a cause of action here. But the, the customer relation trumps yeah. your standing as a competitor. Is, is that their argument? That seems to be their argument. Do you have some cases that refute that? Well, I would simply say, Your Honor, that the ones that we cited at the very beginning of our case, uh, of our uh, answering brief, responding brief, uh, suggested that a number of these had gone forward despite the Communications Act and file rate doctrine. Thank you, Mr. Hall. The case is...